you got a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 John. It's where we're at. We started a series last week here in 1 John, uh, looking at what God has to say to us about the assurance of our salvation and the evidence that brings that forth in our lives. John, throughout his little epistle, gives us evidences of God's work in our lives, of knowing God truly, of knowing God rightly. And so this morning we find ourselves at, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, down through chapter 2, verse 2. If you don't have it with you, it'll be on the screen behind me as I read it for us this morning. It begins in verse 5, John saying, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I write these I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a position where you were self-deceived. Deceived into thinking that you were something or someone that in actuality and reality you were not. Like I had some, some folks here in the church, some men here in the church talk me into playing a little softball league uh, this summer with them. Uh, and so we played a little adult slow pitch softball. And I played baseball growing up. I played in, in little league and in high school. Uh, and so I got a little bit of skills left over in this rusty 40-year-old, now 41-year-old body. Um, but I, 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 I think that I deceived myself into thinking that I was something that I really never was, probably. Um, in my mind. Uh, the very first game of the season, I came up to, to bat, and um, for whatever reason, I don't know why our, our manager put me in the leadoff spot, but he did. But I walked up to the plate, I hit a single to left field, and I came around first base, rounded first base like any good base runner should, taking a look to see what they're going to make a play on me, and so I receded back to first because I knew I wasn't going to make the second. The next batter up hits a ground ball to shortstop. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking back to the days of my youth, Right? Where I'm like, I'm going to get down there and break up this double play. And so I'm going to run a 4-4-40. Now listen, in the days of my youth, I never ran a 4-4-40, okay? I was best maybe 5-1, all right? I was a long, slow guy. Like, oh, you put me on the, on the course over a bunch of miles, I could take somebody. But in a sprint, I was not the guy that you wanted lining up on the line. So I thought, I'm going to make it down there and break up this play. Well, five steps in to my sprint at breakneck pace, which was probably looked like a tortoise crossing the road, I felt this grab in the back of my right hamstring. And I knew exactly what it was because I had torn hamstrings before in my life. And so I knew, I, I, man, I came up lame like a deer that's been shot by somebody who doesn't know where they're shooting, right, running through the forest. That's what I look like. And so I'm hobbling back to the dugout, right, and I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of sitting and sulking because I I, worked up in my mind and created this image of myself that I was not in reality. I thought I could do something that I could not do. I don't know if you've ever been there before, right? Where you come to grips with your limitations. But it was a sobering wake-up call for me. 
Now listen, that's, that might be an amusing story for you, but there are people uh, who are scattered throughout churches across our nation and across the globe who are self-deceived into believing that they are something or someone that they are not in reality. They believe that they know God when in fact they do not know God. And listen, it's not only detrimental for them temporally like a pulled hamstring, but it's damaging for them eternally. Eternally. And John gives us throughout this little epistle, this is going to be pressing on this, do you know God? Do you know Him rightly? Do you know Him truly? What kind of evidence is there in your life that you're not just deceiving yourself with the fact that you maybe attend church and maybe you sing passionately on Sunday mornings, maybe even raise your hands, maybe even go to Bible study. There's all kinds of religious activity in your life, but there is no real knowledge of God. How do you know that you're not just deceiving yourself? John helps us with that all throughout these five chapters. And he's starting off this morning. Last week we took a look at what it means to, what does it mean to know God? This morning we begin to explore how do you know if you know God? And John's going to tell us that one of the ways that you know that you know God is that there, there, is, there is a new awareness of sin, a new attitude towards sin, and a new response to sin. But all that that he says is rooted in an understanding of who God is. And so that's where we're going to start this morning. In verse 5, listen to what John has to say to us about who God is. See, to know that we know God, we must know Him rightly as He's revealed Himself, not as we've conceived of Him. We talked about that a little bit last week. We can't have step for gods that we create in our own image who just do everything that we want them to do. We have to know God as He is and revealed Himself. And John says that God is light. That God is light. This is one of the ways he's revealed himself in the scriptures. In verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him, speaking of Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now listen, that language, that metaphor of light throughout the Bible is used in several ways, but there are two that I think are at work here because I think they're at work back in the Gospel of John as well. And those two are this, that the metaphor of light works to speak of God's holiness, of God's moral purity, of God's goodness, and of God's righteousness. That no one can accuse Him of evil, that there is no evil in Him. But also, it functions to speak of God as the source of life. That which, from whom life emanates and spreads to all that has life. Let me give you a few examples of this in John's Gospel. In John chapter 3, we see John speak of light as the holiness or the purity or the goodness or the righteousness of God. Listen to what he says in John 3, verse 19 and following. And this is the judgment, Jesus says, that light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, this God who is holy, this God who is righteous, this God who is good, this God who is pure, that his works are conducted in that light of his purity and holiness and righteousness and not in the darkness of evil and wickedness. But John also uses this language to speak of God as the source of life. In John chapter 1 verses 4 to 5 he says John writes in him in Jesus the word made flesh was life and the life was the light of men 
The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John is saying this, that the darkness of death and decay has not overcome Jesus because his life was not snuffed out in the grave, but he's still alive. He's risen and ascended. And God is the source, the source of life. And again, in John 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says to the folks, the crowds who are gathered, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Life. That God is the holy. He is the pure, the righteous. He is the absolute, unstained, radiant source of life. Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. Listen, scientists tell us, one of the things they tell us is this, is that the sun is absolutely necessary for life to exist on this planet. For two reasons, heat and light. Without the sun, they tell us that earth would basically be this ice-cold, frozen rock that's floating in the galaxy. And without light, there were, uh, so without the sun's heat, we would be a lifeless ball of ice. The sun warms our seas, it stirs our atmosphere, it generates weather patterns on the earth. It gives energy to the growing green plants as well that provide food and oxygen for life. Light is the plant's only source of energy through photosynthesis. We can get real technical this morning, but I'll spare you all those details because I would probably just start lying about some of them, right? And so they, it, the plants are entirely dependent upon light for their energy, their source of life, unlike us and animals who can eat and we get carbohydrates and protein and fat from other sources. Plants, their sole source of energy is from light and, the car and, the, and from the carbon dioxide in the air. They help scrub some of it out. This is all necessary for biological life to flourish. And so in a very real sense, physically, biologically, scientifically, light is necessary for life. Necessary. So you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and the very first thing God says, let there be, is what? Light. Light. Because God himself is the all-radiant, pure, holy, and righteous source of life. This is who he has revealed himself to be. And here's why this is so important, church. Because I want you to know something, that knowing God does not start with us starts with him it does not start with you it does not start with me it starts with him but listen the message that we have received in our culture oftentimes right if we were to rewrite john 1 5 based on modern values and assumptions we would say this is the message we have heard and are proclaiming to you that i had a problem that i had a need and i came to god and now i'm better that's the kind of message that gets propagated within me, even many evangelical and Christian circles. But John says, it doesn't start with you, it starts with God. God is, and he is light. See, oftentimes when we approach Christianity, we approach it with this cost analysis calculator in our minds, don't we? And we, we, we come to God saying, okay, God, what are the assets? What are the deficits? What's that going to result in for me, right? That's how we approach knowing God. What are the benefits, right? What are the detriments? And then, am I going to give my energy and time and invest my life into this God? 
Because the return would be exponential. That's how we approach Christianity. But Christianity doesn't start there. It starts with God. God is, that He is light. And see, if we never start with God, if we always start with ourselves, I want you to know something, that you will never have, never have real life. You will never have abundant life, the kind of life that Jesus came to provide, if it always starts with you. Because you will always have a myopic view of God, that He exists to serve me. Because listen, if we conceive of God as we want to conceive of God, to receive from God what we want to receive from God, we will never experience the kind of life that He's able to give whenever our eyes are turned from ourselves and they're placed upon Him. It starts with Him and not with us. As He's revealed Himself to be. See, the psalmist says in Psalm 63 that the steadfast love of the Lord, the loving kindness of God is better than life. Listen, church, until you have something, until you have something that is better than life, life will never be any better. Never be any better. God is light. It's the holy, pure, righteous, radiant source of life. And when you come to know God as He is, listen, Here's what begins to change. First, you have a deeper awareness of sin. Your awareness of sin, it grows deeper. You see, those who do not know God have a very shallow understanding and a very shallow awareness of sin. They don't understand the full depth and breadth of sin. This is how John says it in verses 8 and 10. Listen to what he says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So in verse 8, John says this. He says, if, if we say we have no sin, we are self-deceived and the truth is not in us. What John's saying is this. It's possible to think that the truth is in you when in actuality is not in you. To think that you, that, 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 that you know God when in fact that you do not go know God, but you're just self-deceived because you're living in this, on this fantasy island, right? I remember that old show, right? Where the, the plane shows up and, right, they drop off the guests and things just don't go quite like how the guests thought they would. Right? You're living on your own fantasy island. If you say that you have no sin, you're self-deceived because you're living in a reality constructed of your own preferences and assumptions rather than one conformed to God's truth. So the truth isn't in you. And then in verse 10 he says, if you say you have not sinned, you make God out to be a liar. Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament testify to the sinfulness of humanity. That we are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. That our first parents in the garden, when they took hold of the fruit that was forbidden, they took hold of that tree, right? They were violating not only the command that God had given, but the relationship that he shared with them because they didn't trust him, that what he had was better for them than what they could make for themselves. And so they plunged humanity into sin, and by nature, we're all sinners. And that nature begins to manifest itself about the age of birth, that selfishness begins to manifest itself from the time that we are born in our lives. Now listen, I, I, I'm well aware that sin is not a popular idea in the, in the culture in which we live. It's not. People push back against this kind of, like we can say we made a mistake, but we dare not say that someone sinned or that we sinned. 
right? And here's why. Because we live in a day and time that is characterized by subjective ethics and morality. Subjective ethics and morality. And what that means is this, that I get to define what's right and wrong for me. I get to determine ultimate reality, what is true and what is false, what is best and what is damaging and destructive. I get to make that decision for myself. And I believe, listen, it's the fruit of what I've, you've heard, some of you heard me talk about this before, it's the fruit of, of what one social commentator back in the 70s labeled expressive individualism. And what one pastor said to, uh, recently is this, he said, expressive individualism is this, according to this way of thinking, the goal of life is to, dis- to discover and express your unique sense of self, no matter what others may say or do to challenge your freedom of personality. The narrative arc of your life is finding your personal route to happiness by following your heart, expressing your true self, and then fighting whoever would oppose you. Your society, your family, your past, or your church. See, individualism tells you you are what you feel. You look deep inside, discover what you feel most deeply, and then you live out of that regardless of who opposes you and what consequences it may have for your life. And listen, there may be some of you here this morning who feel that way. And and I hope there is. But but if you are, let let me push back on that for a moment. Let me ask you a question. If that's you, if you believe that you get to determine what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is true and false, what is best for yourself based upon how you feel internally, let me ask you this question. How do you sift through your desires and determine what is best? Determine what is good and what is evil. What measuring stick do you have for that? Because listen, from culture to culture, that changes. It changes. And it changes from generation to generation as well. Listen, if you were born a thousand years ago in northern Europe, and you found within yourself, in the middle of the dark ages, with nothing but chaos and carnage, and you found within yourself a desire to steal, kill, and plunder... That would have been applauded and celebrated. You'd have been a hero. We're going to follow you into war. We're going to vanquish all of our enemies. We're going to take over all these lands. And we're going to kill all of these people. We're going to pillage and plunder everyone. But if you're born today in the heart of Rockwall County, and you find those same desires for aggression at work within you, you're going to be sent to therapy or prison. Right? Maybe both, yes. Maybe both. Right? So... So from generation to generation and location to location, those things change. On the flip side, if you were born in those days and you found within yourself a sexual desire that was divergent from the cultural norm, it would have been punished. And yet today it is celebrated. You can be anyone who you choose. Be any person. You can, you can be any person that you desire. See, someone is telling you what desires are good and someone is telling you what desires are bad, the ones you should have and the ones that you shouldn't have. And it changes from culture to culture and generation to generation, but not so with God. Not so with God. That there is a normative sense of what is right and what is good because God is light. And as you know him, there's a deeper awareness of sin that begins to emerge in your life because you begin to see that the essence of sin runs deeper than your actions. And it involves your inclinations. 
See, some of us think that sin, like, like when we, we're going to go to war against sin in our lives, it's like whack-a-mole. Remember that game? Right? You put the quarter in, or maybe like today's like $1.50, whatever it costs to play a video game at an arcade. Right? You put the money in, and you pick up the mallet. And all these moles begin to pop up. You're like, wham! Oh, and that thing just kind of goes down. Another one pops up, wham! Right? You just keep whacking moles as they pop up in different places of your life. And some of us think that's what sin is. It's what you see on the outside whenever it pops up. That's the manifestation of it. But listen, sin runs much deeper than that. Don't think of whack-a-mole, think of crabgrass, which is a curse from the pit of hell. Right? Especially if you have a Bermuda lawn in North Texas. Right? Because that stuff is invasive, isn't it? You know why it's so invasive? Because you can go around all day long, you can pluck all the stems and stalks off that crabgrass, but you know what it does? It sends off runners underneath the ground and it comes up 10 inches further over here and 12 inches further over here and the clump just gets wider and bigger. And so what do you have to do? You have to get underneath, into the dirt, under the surface. See, sin is not just our actions. And as you come to know God, you begin to see the, the own depths of your depravity begin to come to the surface because you begin to see the greed that is under the surface. You begin to see the lust. You begin to see the pride, the arrogance, the conceit, the envy, the jealousy. That all those are things under the surface that give rise to these actions in your life. Whereas be so before you had a very shallow understanding of sin that it's just the things that I do. But now you begin to see it's who you are. Part of your nature. And you come to wrestle with, because listen, most of, us, most of us think that whenever you come to know God, everything begins to move up into the right in your life. If you've walked with God for more than three days, you know that that is not true. And a part of the reason that's not true is because of some of the desires of your own heart. Because the longer that you walk with God, the more He begins to uncover in your life and you have a deeper awareness of sin I could go on but we'd be here all day second to, if you know God truly not only do you have a deeper awareness of sin you can't just say I don't have any sin but you begin to see it more clearly in your life but also you begin to, your attitude towards sin begins to change because you see it as death and not life you see it as death and not Life. Listen to what John says, the way that he says it. In verse 6 and 7, he says, But if we, have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, the metaphor of walking in the Bible often describes somebody's consistent course of life how they conduct themselves how they live and John says in verses 6 and 7 that if God is the source of life if God is the radiant righteous source of life then those who know him will not continue to go to the well of decay and death and drink they will not continue to walk in darkness but rather they will walk in the light of the life that he has given, the abundant life that he has provided. And they will walk in the light of the truth that he's revealed, the things that lead towards life. And they begin to see sin as death and decay. 
they begin to see that what sin promises, it can never deliver. Listen, one old preacher said it this way, and he was like a walking thesaurus, right? So just listen. He says, sin is the skull amidst life's banquet, the desert breath that drinks up every drop of dew, a madness in the brain, a poison in the heart, an opiate in the will, a frenzy in the imagination. Sin is the disease of the soul, the instrument of everlasting ruin, the midnight blackness that invests man's whole moral being. Sin promises velvet and gives a shroud. It promises liberty and delivers slavery. It promises nectar and produces gall. It promises perfumed handkerchiefs and gives nothing but foul rags. It promises silk and gives only sackcloth. And listen, if you know God, you come to know God and see that life is in Him, then you begin to see sin as nothing but death and decay. So John says it's inconsistent for you to continue to walk in darkness and claim to know this God who is the source of light and life. It's like going to the dentist. Anybody else afraid to go to the dentist? Like, because no matter how well you have brushed for six months, you're afraid they're always going to find something, right? Right, and so you go sit in the chair and they, you know, try to talk to you while they got all these instruments in your mouth and you're like, I don't know. They're like, what? And they take the instruments out and you tell them and they put the instruments back in and they're talking to you and it's just constant. It's hard to have a conversation. But it's like going to the dentist and having them clean your teeth and the doctor take x-rays and they come in and they examine you. And you go, look, doc, I swear up and down, I've been brushing my teeth three times a day. I've been flossing once a day. I use a fluoride rinse every night. And he's like, well, you got seven cavities. You need three root canals. And the plaque looks like a white vehicle driving through the floodwaters of fate last night covered in mud, right, all over your teeth. So no matter what you profess, listen, what you've been practicing is a little bit different. And John says that's what it's like to claim to have fellowship with God. And to be walking in the light of life and enjoying the fullness that he provides and affords. And yet to continue to practice, you profess to have fellowship, but your practice is in the realm of decay and death. You continue to give yourself over to sin without any resistance. John's not claiming sinless perfection here. We're going to see that here in a moment. But what he's saying is, is there a consistent pattern in your life of, of moving, of movement toward the life that is in the light of Jesus Christ, of purity and holiness and righteousness? Or is there a consistent pattern in your life of walking in the darkness and experiencing nothing but decay? John says if you're walking in the light, it'll have two effects in your life. He gets real practical. He says first you'll have fellowship with one another. You'll have fellowship with one another. Listen. I know there are many reasons why people walk away from the church. I know there are. Some of it's because of church hurt. I want to say that's a real thing. A real thing. Right? Some of you have been wounded by relationships. You've been wounded by leaders. You've been wounded by members of other churches. It's a very real thing. But there are other reasons that people walk away from the church. And one of them, listen, one of them is because they would prefer anonymity to accountability. They prefer anonymity to accountability. And they prefer to be able to continue to walk in darkness without having 
someone call them on it, without having someone see their pride and how it manifests in their relationship with their spouse, without having see somebody see their greed and how it manifests in their relationship toward material possessions, to, be able to, get, to continue to walk in lust and have somebody call them on their, their use of illicit materials. They want to continue to walk in the darkness. They want to bring those things into the light. And that's one reason people, when people get too close, people walk away from the church. But John says, if you walk in the light, you have nothing to hide. You lay everything bare before someone else. Some of you are terrified of that because of what happened last time. But John says there is. It's part of the effect is that you move from anonymity to accountability in the context of relationships and have fellowship. You share with one another because these other people are pursuing holiness with their life. They're wanting to pursue this life that God has given as well. So you share that in common and you encourage each other in it. But he also says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. And listen, in, in a very theological way, the blood of Jesus cleanses us fully and finally upon our conversion so that the penalty of sin no longer hangs over our head, but he cleanses us progressively as well as we walk with him, as we know him, as we walk with his people as well, progressively from the power of sin in our lives. Some of those spots and blemishes get smaller and smaller over the course of time. They may never go away fully, but they get smaller and smaller, at least until glory. So here's a question. Are you moving toward community or away from it? And are you getting better or are you getting worse? So your attitude towards sin changes. You see it as death and not life. Third, your response to sin changes as well. Because see, for those who do not know God, whenever they're confronted with their sin, they run from Him. Those who do know Him, they run to Him. They run to Him. Look at what John says in verse 9. He says that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness see those who know god rightly whenever sin their, their sins are confronting them their pride their arrogance their greed their lust their idolatry when all that comes to the surface they don't run away from god and cover themselves with, with garments of their own choosing, but they run towards God and they are covered by the blood of Christ himself. The, the righteousness of Christ himself. And so they move toward God, God in confession. You know what that word confess means? It means to say the same thing. To agree with God about our sin. That it is death. That it does go beneath the surface. I do see it down here, not just up here, and it's creating decay in my life. It's not producing health and life and joy and peace to say the same thing about our sin. And when we know God through faith in Jesus Christ, we confess our sins and God promises to forgive us, to wipe away our shame, to wipe away our guilt, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to notice something in this text. On what grounds does he promise it? He does not. Listen, it is not that God is not merciful. It is not that God is not gracious. It is not that God is not loving. He is all those things. But notice the grounds in this text upon which he promises forgiveness. 
he does not say that he is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins or that he is faithful and, and, and gracious to forgive us our sins, but he says what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The, the grounds upon which God promises to forgive our sins is not his mercy, but it is his justice. Now you go, what? If God is light in all of his holiness, in all of his beauty, in all of his majesty and glory, in all of his righteousness, that there is no evil in him, there is no darkness in him, there is no decay in him. If he has all those things, and yet we are sinners by nature and by choice, and are on a path toward the decay and death, how can we come to God and confess sin, believing that he's going to be just? Because wouldn't justice wipe us out? It would. It would. Short of Jesus Christ. Short of Jesus Christ. Because you see, when Jesus... When Jesus is born of a virgin, when Jesus lives the life that we should have lived in perfect obedience to God the Father, and then he goes to the cross to die the death that we should have died, he takes upon himself what John calls the wrath of God. God's holy anger against sin, which is right and just. Some of you are like, I knew it. God's just this angry God up there who just wants to slay everybody. Now, I want you to know something. That God's anger is an overflow of his love. It's an overflow of his love. Just like your anger at your spouse is oftentimes an overflow of your love. Whenever you are wronged or you are wounded, you would not care, you would not be so upset if you didn't care so deeply. If you weren't so invested. And listen, the wrath of God falls upon Jesus. Listen to what he says in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And what John means by that is this, is that Jesus took the wrath of God. That word propitiation means this. He took the wrath of God for us and he turned the wrath of God from us. So that it would not fall upon us, but it's fallen upon him. That God's justice has been satisfied in Jesus. That God's holy anger has been assuaged in Jesus. Has been satisfied. And so listen, it says Jesus is our advocate as well. We have an advocate with the Father. You know what an advocate is? Somebody who pleads our case. Stands before God pleading our case. And the one who pleads our case took our punishment. So listen, when Jesus stands before the Father pleading for us, he's not, when, when Shannon Collins sins and he comes before God asking, confessing his sin and asking for forgiveness, Jesus is not standing before the Father saying, Father, just give him one more shot for me, right, for my sake, to be merciful to him, to be gracious to him. He's not pleading that. He's also not pleading my merits. He's not saying, listen, he's really a pretty good guy. He had this one little hiccup here, right? Or he, he continues to have this one little hiccup, but really, look at all the other positive character qualities that exist within him. He's not pleading my merits. And God the Father isn't going, well, I'll give him just, just, this, just one more time. I'll give him a shot. 
No, what Jesus is doing before the Father is He's saying, Father, my death on the cross satisfied Your holy anger against His sin. And He has come to You in confession, bearing His soul before You. The righteous and just thing to do is forgive Him, not the merciful thing. He's pleading for justice and not mercy. Because it would be unjust of God to punish you for your sin if Jesus has already been punished for it. That's why you can have confidence to go before this God in confession. You don't have to run from Him, church. You can run to Him. So listen, to know God to have a deeper awareness of your sin, to have a change in attitude toward your sin, and a change in response to your sin. All because this God is the source of life. He is light. Have you come to Him? This morning, I want to invite you to do so, whether it's for the first time or another time. If you've never come to Jesus in repentance and faith, trusting in what He has done for you, I want you to know that you can know this God today. Today. That if indeed God right now is working in your heart and convicting you of sin, that indeed it's more than just your actions, right? These few things that you've tried to clean up in your life over the years, but it indeed it's an inclination, it's desires in your heart that only He is able to begin to help you weed and root out. To come to Him. It's very simple. You come to Him acknowledging your sin and asking for His grace and throwing your life upon His mercy and His justice. Not bringing your hands full saying, God, look at all the good things I've done. But I'm coming to you on the merits of Jesus, not my own. Would you forgive me and cleanse me? I want to know you. If that's you this morning, I'd love to visit with you afterwards. I'll be at room five on the way out, which is just outside these doors to the left. I'd love to visit with you about what that means and pray with you this morning. And if you're here this morning and you've known, you know that you know God. God is right now confirming that in your heart. I want to encourage you. If there are things, because listen, again, John is not talking about sinless perfection. He says, if anyone does sin, any of your children sin. They have an advocate who pleads their case and took their punishment. I want you to know that what he wants more than anything this morning is for you to run to him and not hide from him. Would you believe the gospel is true for you today? Let's pray. Father, we come today thanking you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that because of his life and his death that we do not have to flee from but we can flee to you we can find refuge in you your son is pleading for justice but you're the very one who sent him to accomplish that justice so father i pray this morning that these evidences that we've seen God, that they would either have the effect of comforting us 
in our knowledge of you are conflicting us because we realize we don't know you. Father, I pray. For those who don't know you, I pray, God, this morning, they would flee to Jesus, the one who is before the throne of God above, with a strong and perfect plea, that he would become their high priest through whom they have access to the throne of grace. That they would know you rightly and truly. For those who do, I pray they would rejoice all the more. And they would see all the more in their lives. Those areas in which there are dark spots of pride, dark spots of jealousy, dark spots of envy, dark spots of lust, dark spots of greed. brought into the world as the light of me.